All right, everyone, good morning. Uh, new year, new series. Uh, we're diving into the book of Ephesians. It's a letter written by an early church leader named Paul to the first Christians in a city called Ephesus or in a region in and around Ephesus. And before we get started, what I'd like to do is do something that you did in elementary school where you put on your imagination cap. So uh, everyone put on your ima- Right there, dude, you were ready. I said, and boom, you just saw, boom, put the, ima- I need more, like, get, yeah, put the imagination cap on, you're in fifth grade again. Guy was ready, man. Okay, so what I need you to imagine is that you were alive 2,000 years ago, and you're a traveler in the ancient world, and you're going to go to the city of Ephesus. You've never been there, but you've heard a lot about it. So... As you approach the city, you immediately see from a distance massive, beautiful architectural achievements, temples, monuments, statues. You've heard that dozens of gods and goddesses have homes here, that even the emperor has a temple dedicated to him. You are excited to get in because clearly, even from a distance, there are things here that are some of the most beautiful architectural achievements you've ever seen. There is one thing that clearly stands out, a massive building. You don't know what it is, but it's bigger than anything in the city and bigger than anything you've actually ever seen. As you make your way into the city, a merchant immediately kind of crosses your path and says, Stranger, would you like to purchase what I have to offer? And he begins to show you these little scrolls, and they're called Ephesian Grammata. And you've actually heard about these before because they're known all across the region of Asia Minor and indeed in many places of the Roman Empire. These Ephesian Grammata are sacred scrolls with secret words that are meant as incantations to give the reader powers. And so the first scroll the merchant pulls out, he places in your hand, assuming you're already going to buy it, and says, this scroll, when you recite the words that are on here, you will never be harmed by any evil or demonic spirit. You clearly aren't buying it, and he can tell by your body language. So he pulls out another scroll and says, stranger, you need this one. This scroll, if you recite the words, will give you the protection of angels. He's met with a similar response by your body language. So he pulls out a third scroll from his cloak, and he pulls you close and whispers in your ear, stranger, this scroll gives you the power over women. Whoever you want to fall in love with you, if you say these words, she is yours. And you immediately say, hey man, thanks, I'm, I'm new here, I'm a visitor, I've heard about this stuff, I don't have the time or the money, I, I'm not going to buy any of this Ephesian grammatic, but, but, but thanks, it's a good hustle. You move forward, and your eyes are set upon the massive temple in the distance, the one that's clearly the largest that stands out above everything else. Your gaze is fixed, and you're walking in that direction. And as you're walking that direction, you notice an additional merchant, and he's selling some sort of idol or some sort of statue. And it looks bizarre from a distance, but as you approach, it becomes a little more clear. And the merchant says, hey, stranger, I see you've noticed our goddess. She is the queen of heaven. Her name is Artemis. And she is the Lord and Savior of this city. Would you like to buy an idol? And you kind of, you think it's cool, but you really don't want to spend the money on it. And the merchant says, hey, 
have you heard the story of the sacred stone of Artemis? You shrug no, and you say go on. The merchant tells you that many years ago, a giant ball of fire appeared in the sky, and this great big ball of fire traveled across the city and eventually landed on Ephesian soil. And the citizens of Ephesus went to see it, and there was a giant black stone, and it was said that Jupiter himself sent the sacred stone of Artemis to the people of Ephesus. And the merchant says, because of that, this town built Artemis, her great temple. And you say, so is, is that the giant temple that I see in the distance? He says, yes. No matter where you're at in the city, you always see her house. She is the queen of heaven, our goddess, and she has promised us protection and salvation. And you immediately say, hey, look, I don't want the idol things, but I need to, I need to go and see this thing with my own eyes. As you walk away, the merchant yells in the distance and says, hey, stranger, one last thing. I could tell you're not from around here. You're a little weird. And so if you get into trouble, drink too much wine and get into a bar fight, break one of our cultural taboos, near the temple of Artemis is the sacred garden of Artemis. And in the sacred garden of Artemis, there's a sacred tree. If you are in trouble and you're in danger, someone wants your life, go to the sacred tree of Artemis. And in that and near that, you have protection of our goddess, the queen of heaven. No one will harm you if you are near her tree. No death will come to you because of her sacred tree. Okay, you don't plan on getting any trouble, but good to know. You make your way to the temple, and it truly is something you've never seen. It is the largest temple your eyes have ever observed far greater than even the Parthenon, has columns 60 feet high made of pure marble. You were in awe of this place. As you look at it, you slowly ponder to yourself, whatever's in this, whoever is in this temple must be worthy of worship. A stranger interrupts you and says, if ever you doubt the power of Artemis, if ever you doubt her love and affection and protection of this city, you come to this temple because in the center of this temple is her sacred stone. It's been here for generations. So if ever you doubt and you need evidence, you view the sacred stone of Artemis. After this, you're sort of filled with awe and you turn around and look at the landscape of Ephesus. You've known that the town has boasted roughly 250,000 people as a population, but you had no idea how grand this place was going to be. It is filled with life and business and song and dance and alcohol and prostitution. Anything you could ever want or dream up is found here at the city of Ephesus. And it's to this city and region and area that Paul writes a letter to the first Christians who are attempting to preach the crucified and risen Messiah to this pagan world. We're going to be here for about 10 weeks, so quite some time. 
be digging deep into this. We have small group curriculum. It's been mentioned already. It's in the back. If you're not in a small group, you can get in one. If you are going to do this by yourself, you can go through this alone. Um, but I encourage you, this book is rich. It's deep, and we're going to be in here in so, for some time. Uh, this book is probably some of your favorites. Like whenever we do, sometimes we do series, and it's like, okay, we're starting off in Hab- Habakkuk. Who, whose favorite book of the Bible is Habakkuk, any Leviticus people. It's like no hands, but watch this. Is anybody's favorite book in the Bible Ephesians? Yeah, there's going to be people. It's like nobody's got no love for Habakkuk, but you say Philippians or Ephesians, you're going to get people. Now, that's the historical context to this letter. And how do you write, as Paul, a leader in the early church movement, to the very first Christians in this environment? What will he tell them in these six chapters? There are so many things that he has to wrestle with. Ephesus is a place of paganism. And what I mean by that is there's worship of of gods and goddesses. From the archaeological evidence, we know that at least, at minimum, 50 gods and goddesses were worshipped here because we found the, the temples, the monuments, the statues, were signs of it. We know more than 50, we just know at minimum there was 50 gods and goddesses worshipped at this location. Uh, It's a society and culture of pluralism. You could pick any god you want, worship whoever you want, worship this god, that god, worship these dozen, this set. It didn't matter. You sort of had to pick one and you weren't supposed to tell other people that their god was phony or fake or say something slanderous. As I mentioned, there's also emperor worship. Caesar Augustus put a temple to his father, Julius Caesar, in there, and he was worshipped as divine. There is magic and sorcery. The Ephesian grammata is known all across the Roman Empire. It's these scrolls that could, could perform magic, supposedly. Wealth and luxury. The temple of Artemis is also the bank of Ephesus, and so religion and economics are intricately bound up together. And it's a place where there's mysticism. There's people who claim to have mysterious secret knowledge that if you knew, you could be absolved and be brought into the presence of this deity, this god, or this goddess. And because of all these things that they're wrestling with, Paul has to cover a lot of ground in these six chapters. And so, this is tiny, I know many of you won't be able to read it, but I just wanted to give you a glimpse of the type of content that these six chapters will have. In this short letter, we will cover, Paul will cover spiritual warfare, worship in the church, including the issue of diversity in form and style, spiritual formation, gender roles in marriage, racial reconciliation, the issue of divine sovereignty and human free will, the basis and call for Christian unity, the gospel in an animistic context, the gospel in a pluralistic context, the gospel in a political context, the gift of prophecy, the role of the Jewish law, the local church and its missions efforts, intercessory prayer in the Christian life, the nature of spiritual power, and the ongoing work of Satan and demons and tons more. It's all there in these short six chapters. And so we got a lot of ground to cover. We're just going to deal with the intro. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. We're going to spend our time there, so let's dig in. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So just some brief context to set up this book, which is a letter that Paul is writing to Christians in the region of Ephesus. So if you're new to Christianity, Paul is a name you're going to hear all the time. Paul is probably the second most influential human being to ever live. If he's not second, he's in the top five, certainly. Paul was a persecutor of Christians. He hated Christians, imprisoned them, ordered them to be killed. 
he converts and becomes a follower of Jesus and subsequently becomes a leader in the early church movement. He is writing to Christians and churches in the region of Ephesus. An important note is currently, as Paul is writing this, he's in prison, roughly 61, 62 AD. Paul's in prison. This will be incredibly important for later. And Paul the apostle, while in prison, is writing to these Christians. And verse 2, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a historical note on the phrase Lord Jesus Christ. 2,000 years removed, we've become so used to the phrase Lord Jesus Christ. But I, I really want us to step back and put ourselves in the historical situation. Paul is declaring... 30 years, roughly 30 years after the death of Jesus, that Jesus is Lord. Jesus was a poor Jewish man who died naked on a wooden cross. That's the slave's death. Crucifixion reserved, was reserved for the worst of the worst, people on the bottom of the hierarchy. Jesus was a poor Jewish man nailed naked on a wooden cross as the slave man's death. And within 30 years, there are already people across the Roman Empire declaring that the crucified slave is indeed Lord. The historical implications of that are worthy of unpacking for the rest of the time we have together. But suffice to say, Lord has two dimensions. One dimension has to do with the Jewish world. And the phrase Lord in Greek, kurios, was the word that was used to describe the God of Israel in the Old Testament in the Greek scriptures. In other words, people who are reading Paul's letter, they read kurios Lord, they equate that with the God of Israel. So Paul is giving deity, ascribing divinity to Jesus in declaring him Lord. Secondly, in the Roman world, Lord was reserved for Caesar, and so there's a political element to this. Paul is saying Jesus is indeed the King of kings and Lord of lords. Within 30 years of the horrific death, the slave man's death, the poor Jewish man nailed immovable to a wooden cross, he's being worshipped across the Roman Empire as Lord and Savior. That is fascinating, just from a historical standpoint. Now to the meat of the letter. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Now, if you're honest, that's a hard sentence to follow. It's got like this fragment, this piece, this piece, this preposition, this, what's this connected to? Uh, and I have bad news for you. Uh, in English, um, this appears sort of like one, one or two sentences, but that's just because the translators are trying to make sense of this section. But actually, from verse 3 all the way to verse 14, which we'll get to in a couple slides, the sentence structure in the original composition of the language is one sentence. It's one big, giant sentence. And you have to be honest, it's hard to track all 
the pieces. Now, I did something uh, for those of you who love like grammar and syntax and all that stuff. Just taking a good look. <laughs> taking a good look at who smiled. Uh, I, I want you to think I'm cool uh, and accept me because you know uh, oftentimes my grammar is not the best. So I've done something to impress you. I'm gonna break down this giant sentence from three to 14. So this is Paul's blessing, it's unusually long. It's technically a genre, is a Jewish barakah. A barakah is a sort of blessing, a declaration of praise. So in the first 14 verses, Paul is just giving this typical Jewish blessing, but it's infused with so much theological meaning. But in that one sentence, it contains 202 words, and Paul composes these 202 words by using 32 prepositional phrases, 21 genitive expressions, not counting genitives connected to a preposition, six relative clauses, and five adverbial participle clauses. And some of you are like, now it makes sense. I don't know what any of that means. I took 10 semesters of Greek. I have no idea what that means. Come on, man. But you get the point. It's a big, giant sentence loaded and infused with theological meaning. So let's backtrack. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Where's Paul? Where's Paul located right now? He's in prison. And he is saying that Christians both the recipients of the letter and he himself have already experienced and received and been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Now, if I'm in prison, I'm not like waking up in my prison cell going, man, I'm living the blessed life. You know, this is good, man. Prison food, it's delicious. It's great, man. I only get to go outside for five minutes a day. Fantastic. Like, you're not gonna say those things. You're not gonna think those things. But Paul in prison says, you Christians and myself, we've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing. How could he say that? It's because we oftentimes only view the world, we view reality through a materialist lens. We only see that which is physical. And God is saying, if you understood what was taking place spiritually, you would understand I'm in prison because the proclamation and success of the gospel of Jesus Christ by which I have been saved. And I've been blessed, man, with every spiritual blessing. And the spiritual blessings are in or from the heavenly places. And the phrase heavenly places is worth unpacking because the word heaven in the Old and New Testament is an incredibly flexible word Heaven has a multitude of meanings. Heaven can mean something as simple as there are birds in the heavens. And when you read that, you're not supposed to think, oh, in heaven, there's the throne room of God and there's, you know, little parakeets flying, flying around. You're not supposed to envision heaven as in the throne room of God heaven. There's birds in the heavens means there's birds in the sky. But the Bible also talks about that which is above the heavens, and there's also, in Ephesians, talk of the highest of all heavens, where the throne room of God is. And so, for the biblical authors, heaven is something as simple as the sky. But then there's also something above the heavens. And as modern people, materialists, when we think about that which is above the heavens, we think directionally, 
like geographically, directionally. Oh, what's above the sky? Modern people say outer space. Ancient people wouldn't say outer space. Well, they'd say, well, there's something above that. That's the, the spiritual world. And it's not because they were dumb and they thought like if you kept traveling up, you would reach heaven. They're not thinking directionally. They're thinking theologically. And so when they say that which is above heaven, they are talking about the spiritual. And when they talk about the highest of all heavens, they're talking about the place where God resides. Now, this is important because when Paul says in the heavenly places, he's not talking about the sky. He's talking about the spiritual realm. Later, you're going to hear about war and strife that is taking place in the heavenly places. He's not saying, go look outside, look up, and you can see demons fighting. He's talking about the spiritual reality. So Paul is claiming, even in prison, that he has already received every spiritual blessing in and from the heavenly places. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now this idea that God has seen all things and had a plan before the foundation of the world would be incredibly encouraging to the Christians at Ephesus. They live in a culture of witchcraft and sorcery. At the heart of witchcraft and sorcery, in whatever form it may appear, is this idea that through human efforts, and in particular, human efforts divorced from the will of God or human efforts forbidden by God, that these human efforts can manipulate the world, can manipulate reality. So in Ephesus, there's witchcraft, sorcery, Ephesian grammata, astrology, and what people are trying to do is manipulate reality, manipulate the stars in order to give themselves protection or blessing. And Paul is saying to that culture who's looking up for the stars, who's buying grammata, who's, who's going to see this shaman, whatever it may be, he's saying, no, no, you don't get to manipulate the course of human trajectory. Before the foundations of the world, I knew all things. And before the foundations of the world, God had determined responses to every human event. So nothing catches him off guard. God doesn't, you know, you do something tomorrow, and it's like, I never thought they could have done that. Before God said, let there be light, he knew you and he knew your name before the creation and foundations of the cosmos. God knew you, he knew your name, and he knew you would rebel, and in spite of that, he saw fit to save you. So don't go about consulting these sorcerers, the gramata, the stars. You trust in God and God alone, who knows the beginning from the end. And this planning that took place before the foundation of the world was for your adoption, your adoption. Now, this is incredibly important because um, many of us know the sting of what it's like to not have a family, to, to have your dad walk out on you, to not have a mom, or to have a family where you have your mom and dad, but it's a really bad situation and, and it just didn't go right for you. And so this is talking about how if you are in Christ, you've been adopted into God's family. 
It's a technical term. It's a, it's a Greco-Roman legal term. Um, so when the readers of Paul's letter hear this term, they would think in those categories. It's much like ours. Adoption is a legal thing in our, in our country. There's a process, there's proceedings to be legally adopted. It's the same way in the Greco-Roman world. If someone were to be adopted, they would be legally freed from the rights of the biological father. The biological right father would have no more claims or rights over that child, and that child would then be adopted into the new family and receive the status as a naturally born son or daughter of the adopted father. This is really important for later, and I shouldn't even say it right now. I didn't say it in first service because it's super offensive to modern people. I was going to save it for a couple more weeks, get the new year off right, but we'll just, I'll just give you a hint. See, modern people, and even Christians, I'm going to challenge you here, okay? We think, well, all people are children of God. And so why do I need to be adopted? We're all made in his image. We're all children of God. And Paul would say, before Christ, you weren't a child of God. God? Do you know who your father was? The devil. Your father was Satan, and you liked it. You served the prince of the power of the air. That's later in Ephesians. And again, air doesn't mean like Satan is the prince of the the air molecules. It's about the heavenly reality. And you were in service to your father, the devil, and Christ has freed you from that and adopted you into his family. And so why is that important? Remember that it's a legal thing. The previous father has no rights, cannot claim anything over the child. The child now has the status of the new father and the new family. That's what Paul's going to unpack in a little bit. But modern people don't like hearing that at all. So this is one of those times where I just go, hey man, I didn't say it. Paul said it, man. He said your father was the devil. I didn't say it. You know who Jesus said to the Pharisees' father was? The devil. But there's an adoption thing going on. We'll, we'll unpack that more later. That's just a, a preview of where we're going. It goes on. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan in the fullness of time to unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth. Do you feel feel that sentence still kind of chugging along? It's like five words, comma, five words, comma, seven words, comma. Keeps building upon this. And so let's let's take a look at some of these key components. First, I want to point out verse eight. It says that God took his grace, which he's abundant in, there's riches of his grace, and he's lavished it or poured, out, poured it out upon us. Which again goes back to the idea of Paul having every spiritual blessing while in prison. Do you understand that if you are in Christ, you have already, this is a past tense verb, you have already been lavished with the riches of his grace. And sometimes it doesn't seem like that or feel that way because we got this problem or this problem, but we forget to mention that in Christ, at the cross, God himself took care of your biggest problems because your biggest problems weren't earthly or material. Your biggest problem and your biggest debt was caused by sin and rebellion, and Christ himself pays that debt and lavishes upon you the riches of his grace. He pours it out upon you. There's a concept here that's very 
It's central. God is a being who is abundant in grace. Or it, is, or it talks about the riches of his grace, the abundance of his grace. At the center of reality is a being who is rich in grace and mercy. The center of all things, there is a being who is rich in grace and mercy. This world is not in alignment with this person. You feel that. You know it daily, right? Is the world rich in grace and mercy and forgiveness? We're not in alignment. What you need to know as a Christian is that whatever has happened to you, whatever happens to you, whatever you face, whatever problem, whatever bad things may happen, at the center of reality is a good God who is rich in mercy and grace. And he has adopted you in to his family. And you receive the status of son or daughter. Now verse 10 uh, is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. And it's the kind of central theme idea of this series. I'm going to backtrack to verse 9 so we could read the whole section. Verse 9 says, Making known to us the mystery of his will. So there's a mystery of God's will that nobody knew. And it was his purpose to reveal to us this mystery. And this mystery that he revealed to us was set forth in Christ. It's tricky to follow. Verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time. So a mystery of God's will has been hidden and now it's being made known at the fullness of time. And what is the mystery? The mystery is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The great mystery of the will of God was that somehow he was going to unite all things in Christ, all things in heaven and on earth. I have to do some unpacking. What does this mean? So in creation... Before sin enters into the world, creation is in harmony with itself. Everything is united, there's peace, there's harmony, there isn't rebellion. Sin enters the equation and there's a fracturing and fragmenting that occurs. And it's like all the pieces, all the building blocks of creation get shattered and fractured and fragmented into little puzzle pieces, jagged little puzzle pieces that are just thrown everywhere. What Paul is saying is that somehow, in and through and for Christ, all the jagged, broken puzzle pieces are going to come together, and they're going to be united under Christ. Now, this word to unite, very difficult to to communicate the meaning. It's one of those things that... um, the word in the original language has so much meaning, it's very difficult for one or two words in our language to, to get that across. Some of you have worked with translators. You work in a, I saw Oscar and Rachel. It's like sometimes someone says something, and in English it was like three words. You're like, well, I gotta speak a whole sentence in, in Spanish to communicate these three words, or vice versa. Or sometimes in English there'll be two sentences, and I've, I've worked with tra- translations in another country, and someone just says two words. You went, that's not what I said. Like, no, 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 that's, that's all you need. It's these two words. So this, in English, to unite 
is actually this big one giant word in Greek. Anakephali osestai. Big giant word, and it's just in English, to unite. To unite. But to unite can't carry the full weight. It's like the truck isn't big enough to carry the weight of this cargo. It can carry some of it, but not all of it. So some English translations will say to unite all things. Some will say to sum up all things. Some will say to bring under the headship. Uh, Some will say the point of all things. But it's this idea of all the fragmented pieces coming together. And maybe three kind of metaphors or illustrations can help this idea come together because it's central for Ephesians and the rest of this series. What does it mean for there to be a uniting of all things in Christ, in heaven and on earth? So one way of looking at it is um, through, a, through a set of movies. So there's a movie called Star Wars. Um, and I'm not going to talk about the, the last three, no spoilers, no, no, none of that stuff. I'm not going to talk about the last three. Uh, we'll just talk about the original trilogy and the prequels. And I'm not going to give you a spoiler. If you haven't seen Return of the Jedi, man, it's been 40 years. You're never going to see it. Um, so in the original trilogy and the prequels, before, before this stuff with the new, you know, the new ones with like Bo and Sunshine and Finn, those, those dudes, we're not talking about those. Um, who is the chosen one? Who is the chosen one in the original trilogy? Say, this is, it's, it shouldn't be a trick question, but it's almost a trick question. I've heard three Luke Skywalkers. Who, Anakin. Luke Skywalker is not the chosen one. Anakin Skywalker is the chosen one. But that brings up tension and problems. Why? Because if you know the movie, Anakin Skywalker becomes... He becomes Mufasa. Darth Vader. The guy who killed Conan the Barbarian's parents. That's a next level mention, okay? Darth Vader. And so when you're watching those movies, the chosen one is supposed to bring balance to the force. And the reason why it's tricky is like Luke Skywalker's the good guy. So you think, oh, Luke Skywalker's got to be the chosen one. But George Lucas himself said it. Anakin Skywalker will always be the chosen one. So who has to bring balance to the force? Darth Vader. Well, how is that going to happen? You remember at the end of Return of the Jedi, Darth Vader turns back to good, picks up electric chair Palpatine and throws him down the thing. The point is this. The chosen one has to bring balance to the force. Everything in the Star Wars narrative is leading up to this point all the plot holes, all the things that didn't make sense, all the weird stuff that seemed messed up, they all find their resolve, and finally, at the end of Return of the Jedi, the Chosen One, bringing balance to the Force. He's summing all things up in the narrative. He's uniting all the broken pieces. Another way of looking at it is, <clears throat> like in a really long set of books, so some of you are really into like reading science fiction books, and let's, let's think of one of those science fiction trilogies that goes on for, say, seven or eight books, and all of those books are 500 pages. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And you've been reading this for five years. Okay, good, reading and reading, and now the last book of the series is out, and you're like, oh man, 
I can't wait to read it because there's so much like plot holes, so many characters that the character arc isn't finished and there's stuff that's unresolved. Like they never answered this question. Have you ever seen a movie or read a book where it, when it's over you're like, they never answered that question. And this isn't going to do good at the box office so the sequel's going to get canceled and I will never know what happens. So, but if it's a good book series, the last book fixes the plot holes, answered all the questions you had remaining, fixes the character arcs, and they all find their final resolve in the climax of the book. It's a uniting of all the broken pieces into one point. A third example has to do uh, for you musicians. Um, if you're into music, you know there's, there's dissonant chords. And even if you're not a musician, you could think of it like this. You listen to songs where there's dissonance and tension building up. You know what I'm talking about? Scary movies do this often, where it's like this tension and building. And it does something to you physically on an emotional level. Really good classical music does this, where the tension is building and building, almost to a point where you, you like, you're trying to push it forward. It's almost unbearable. And it's building, the dissonance, the tension, and then finally, the C major hits. And it feels good, and peace is brought back into the song. All dissonant chords in all songs find their resolve in the person of Jesus Christ. All plot holes, all tensions, all unanswered questions find the resolve in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Through the cross, resurrection, and second coming of Jesus, everything is coming together and will be put in unity before the headship and lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul is making this claim. Let's go back to where we began. Paul is saying that the crucified one, the peasant who was crucified upon a Roman cross who died in agony, is the agent, the mechanism, the purpose, and the point of all things to sum up all things, to unite all things in heaven and on earth. Now, the logic of this, how it flows, is very difficult for us as modern people to get our minds around because we think in different categories. When we think about, say, the spiritual realm, we think, oh, when I die, I'll go to heaven and then I'll be in the spiritual realm. Um, But the biblical authors see domains and spheres of existence, and they see these domains and spheres as overlapping. So the cover of the small group curriculum and the main graphic for this series, you're going to see these two spheres, and it's, it's trying to communicate the inner logic of what's going to take place in the book of Ephesians. And so let me explain it like this. In the beginning, you have heaven and earth, these two domains, these spheres of existence, And these two domains, these two spheres, are supposed to exist in harmony. There's not supposed to be strife between them. Heaven and earth, they overlap, and there is unity. Because of sin, there's a fracturing and fragmentation that occurs, and now there's actually war and friction and strife between heaven and earth. They're not in harmony anymore. There's been a disruption to that. And that's why we talked about that word heavenly, because the Bible talks about there currently being a war 
in the heavenlies. What's talking about is the spiritual world. And so heaven and earth are in conflict with each other, these two domains. Now, Paul is going to also say that in the same way these two spheres and domains are at war with each other, at lesser levels, there remains domains or spheres where there ought to be unity and harmony, but there is strife and war. So when you read through the book of Ephesians, you're going to go from the heavenly stuff, and then you get down to earthly things. And it talks about how God originally intended there to be one worldwide family of his people. There's to be one worldwide body of Christ made in his image. But what happened at the fall and subsequent to the fall in the Tower of Babel incident is there's a fracturing and fragmenting of humanity. And so what comes out of that is a spinning out of ethnicities and nations. And even though these ethnicities and nations should be in unity and harmony, what does history show us? What do ethnicities and the nations do to one another? We kill each other all of the time. We forget that because we live in a little blip right now in human history where there's been several decades of peace. You occupy a little blip on the timeline where there is this type of peace. But humans, the nations, are at odds with each other. Why do the nations rage? And there's racism and ethnocentrism where we think we're better than them. And so God chose a guy named Abraham to, to lead his people, the Jewish people, and the Jewish people were supposed to bless all the nations so that once again there could be one worldwide family of God made in his image. But when Paul's writing this, the nations are still at war with each other and there's significant relational problems between Jews and Gentiles. And so Jews and Gentiles and the ethnicities and the nations are also at war with each other. There should be unity of Jew and Gentile in one worldwide body of Christ. But there's not. Below that, then Paul goes, and there's other domains and spheres. So you have men and women. And um, is the history of the relationships between men and women one of harmony and peace? No. It's, it's friction. It's hatred. It's evil. And then even below that, you take a subdivision of men and women, then you have husband-wife. And are the relationships between husbands and wives historically good? I mean, when you get married to someone, you make a covenant pledge to love them and honor them and be with them till death do you part. But what takes place in our marriages? Fracturing, fragmentation, hurt, pain, strife, and turmoil. Even the best marriage in this room has its problems. And so throughout this book, Paul is going to look at these dimensions. He goes, there's a sphere in the heavenlies, heaven and earth, they're at odds. The human relationships between Jew and Gentile, they're at odds. Men and women, they're at odds. Husband and wife, they're at odds. And he's going to walk you through this with every chapter. And it's often missed what he's trying to do because there's something very powerful going on. Paul is going to claim that what takes place in the heavenlies, the spiritual conflict, the big spheres, is actually going to trickle down to the next level of human relations. And what's taking place in the spiritual realm is not just trickling down to the nations and ethnicities, it's trickling down into smaller relationships, like the relationship of husband and wife. 
And so it's this crazy idea that the massive spiritual conflict that's taking place in the heavenly realm, that conflict trickles down and affects every sphere and domain underneath it. Now again, modern people, we don't think like this. It's like, no, the spiritual realm, I'll go there when I die and I go to heaven. Paul goes, no, you're not even thinking in the right categories here. There is a real conflict and war taking place. And what happens there has an effect on what's underneath it, and that has an effect on underneath it, and that has an effect on what's underneath it. Now that's a pretty crazy radical claim, but Paul's next claim is even further than that. He is going to say, likewise, way down here, and let's say your marriage, how you interact, whether you live in harmony with your spouse or there's strife and conflict, what's taking place way down there actually has an influence all the way up top into the spiritual world in the heavenlies. Now you may be saying, that sounds, that sounds cool, but the Bible doesn't really talk like that. It doesn't say like stuff like that. And Paul would say, no, no, no. If you want to wage war in the heavenlies, love your wife you want to wage battle and have influence in the heavenly places, love your husband. You say, well, I don't see it. Here's how, here's, here's Paul's logic. How does the book of Ephesians end and how does he get there? Paul begins by talking about the heavenlies and yeah, even though I'm in prison, I have every spiritual blessing. My position is here. And in chapter two, he's gonna talk about the prince of the power of the air and how you were once dead and his, his servant, but you've been freed and now you have life and you have been seated in heavenly places. And then in chapter three, he's gonna talk about how Jews and Gentiles are two different bodies, but the church is supposed to be the one body of Christ. And then in chapter five, you're like, how did, why is he talking about this now? But all of a sudden he talks about how husbands are to treat their wives and how wives are supposed to respond to their husband and how you raise kids. And so he's going from here all the way down. And then how does he end in Ephesians chapter 6? He says, now that we've got really practical about things like how, how you raise your kids, how you, how you treat your spouse, I need to tell you Ephesians chapter 6, which is what? How to fight a battle in the heavenly realm. Put on the full armor of God. For you do not wrestle against flesh and blood. You do not wrestle against earthly things, but you wrestle against powers and principalities and entities in the heavenly places. So Paul's logic is there's these conflicts and they trickle down to us, but the Christian also is called to be faithful in the small domains that they've been placed in and that actually has an effect that goes up to the top. And that's not just, I'm not just saying that spiritually, because again, don't just think spiritually or physically. It's meant to overlap. When you have a better marriage and you have better parenting going on, you are more likely, not always, because there's some great parents, you know, you did a great job, but kids still stubborn. Some of you have been bad parents, but your kids came out all right. But you know that when children are brought up in loving households, with stability, where a mom and dad are loving them, they are statistically more likely, not determined, but statistically more likely to, to do better in life. Now, what happens when there's a whole generation of children who have been raised in stable, loving families? That affects the culture, right? And the culture affects the nation, and the nation affects how they interact with other nations. 
And so the small things travel up the ladder. And it's never just physical and it's never just spiritual. It's always affecting everything. What takes place up there comes down to us, but you should not be hopeless because how you behave down here on earth affects what's taking place up there. So put on the full armor of God and be able to stand against the prince of the power of the air because you wrestle with things not of flesh and blood but of powers and principalities in the heavenlies. Everything is waiting in anticipation for Christ to bring unity to all spheres and domain, uh, domains of existence. And one day Christ will culminate the plan and everything will be brought in unity before him. But until that point, the book of Ephesians wants you to live in light of that future fact. And how do you live in light of that future fact? Well, you, you're supposed to bring resolve and tension Solve the plot holes. Undo the fragmentation. Put the puzzles together. And what does that look like? It looks like you deconstructing and reconstructing every institution, every relationship, every interaction you have in light of the person and work of Jesus. So what are you called to do in the present? You are to rethink and reconstruct every component of your life in light of the cross. So how you look at someone down the street should be different because of the cross of Christ. How you spend your time should be different because of the cross of Christ. How you view politics should be different because of the cross of Christ. How you interact with every component of your life is reconstructed, rethought, and rebuilt upon the event of the crucifixion and life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so for the rest of the book Ephesians, Paul's going to tell us, how do you do that? What does that look like? Because everything in our lives must change. Paul was writing to people in Ephesus in a culture of pluralism. They had imperial cult, magic, mysticism, wealth, luxury, greed, all of it. And in one sense, that world is way different than ours. But in another sense, that's our world. And the first Christians are called to reach Ephesus with the good news of Jesus Christ. And how do you do that? You take the spheres that God's given you responsibility in, you be faithful, and you watch what that does. The ushers can begin passing forth communion. In Christ, all things find their resolve. So, wherever you find yourself today, whatever you've done, whatever's been done to you, whether it's been a bad day, a bad year, a bad decade, a bad life, wherever you find yourself today, whatever plot holes there are in your story, whatever tension, whatever unanswered questions, if you are in Christ, you need to know with certainty and stand on this truth that Christ is the resolve to all of those things. All dissonant chords in all songs, all plot holes, in every story, and all tension and unresolved questions find their answer, their resolve, their final great amen in the person and work of Jesus. And so as we prepare ourselves for communion, we reflect on what we've talked about a lot in the past. Communion is an event where we look into the past and into the future. We look to the past, to the cross of Christ, the event that changes everything that we have to live in light of. And so you think, 
Everything in my life has to be deconstructed and reconstructed, rebuilt around Jesus. We look back to, to the cross. And we also look to the future because the death and resurrection of Jesus didn't make all of your lies instantly problem-free. Remember where Paul is. He's in prison, but yet he's claiming to hold every spiritual blessing. Why? Because he knows what happened in the past and he knows what's happening in the future. The future is the great resolve. All plot holes, all tension, all unanswered questions, all dissonant chords, they all find their great amen in Jesus. And so today as believers, beginning this new year, we look to the past for what Christ has done for us, and we sit knowing that we in the present have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and because of that, we have hope to look to the future that one day all will be resolved. Let's stand as we take communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he takes the bread and says, this is my body broken for you. In Ephesians, we're going to learn that Christ has one body, and his one body is the church, made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So follow this. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, says, this is my body. His body is broken so that we, both Jew and Gentile, could be made the body of Christ, his church. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. When you take this, you are promising and declaring to proclaim my death and resurrection until I return. And so, Lord, just as Paul was in prison and didn't have everything worked out for him, we know that your return brings the great resolve and all things will be united under your authority. And to that day, we look to and hope for Father, we give you thanks. We ask that you would convict us and encourage us as we journey through this letter, the book of Ephesians, um, that everything would be made new to us, that it would feel fresh for those of us who have been Christian a long time, and for people who are new to Christianity, that this difficult book may be made simple so that they could understand what you are communicating through it. So be with us for these 10 weeks as we go through this, Lord. Um, we thank you that you are a God who is abundant and rich in grace. And you do not hoard the riches of your grace for yourself, but you pour it out. You lavish it upon your adopted sons and daughters. We go with thanksgiving in our hearts in light of these truths. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our prayer team.